Everyone, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafidi. Got my co-host Erasmus back with me. I can see he's in his his usual setting now. You're back from New Jersey, bro. Yes, I am. I'm back in California. Uh, good to be back. Totally, man. Um, yeah, guys, another great episode today. We have Saifuddin Amus joining us. I'll read his bio once he jumps on and you'll learn all about him. But today we're diving deep into the nature of the inverted economy. Um, into Austrian economics, you know, led and founded by people like Mises, Rothbard, some of these great masters of the past. We get into the nature of Bitcoin and you know the potential Bitcoin proposes as a solution in 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 the in the push towards freedom and sovereignty, um, and us to be able to thrive as human beings. And in the later stages of the of this episode, we get safe thoughts on the Palestinian Israel conflict and how property rights um, enters that discussion there. Thanks for being here. We appreciate it. Uh, enjoy this episode. You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. Okay, today we have another incredible guest with us. Saifuddin Amus is an internationally best-selling economist and author. In 2018, he authored The Bitcoin Standard, The Decentralized Alternative to Central Banking, the best-selling book on Bitcoin published in 37 languages. In 2021, he published the Fiat, the Fiat Standard, available in 12 languages. And in May 2023, Saifuddin published his latest book, Principles of Economics, a comprehensive textbook in economics in the Austrian school tradition. Saifuddin teaches courses on the economics of Bitcoin and economics in the Austrian school tradition on his online learning platform, saifuddin.com. He also hosts the Bitcoin Standard podcast. He was a professor of economics at the Lebanese American University. He holds a PhD in sustainable development from Columbia University, a master's in development management from the London School of Economics, and a bachelor in mechanical engineering from the American University of Beirut. Saifuddin, thanks for being here for the truth. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, one way we always like to kick this off with first-time guests is we want to get a little bit deep into your personal hero's journey. Um, so, like, what were some of the major, I guess, catalyzing and transformative moments along the path that, I guess, led you down the path you've been down? Um, maybe even, like, were you always drawn towards the field of economics? How did that come about? But, yeah, what are some of the major things that come up in terms of, like, you being who you are today and doing what you do? Hmm. That's a difficult question to answer. It's um, It's really just... A very long story, 43 years of one thing after another <laughs> leading oh, to nice. where I am now. So 1980, the, 1980, brother. Yes, nice. yes. Nice. So it's not very easy for me to um, pick out uh, one specific thing. I mean, I um, I uh, grew up in uh, Palestine in Ramallah. Uh, my father's a doctor. I was always supposed to be a doctor because obviously that's what doctors want uh, but I messed up. I failed. I disappointed my father, I guess, and I went to uh, engineering school instead. Um, but for some reason, I was just uh, after uh, during university years, I took an economics course and I was just very interested in economics uh, during my university studies. So then I pursued it in my master's and in my PhD. And I uh, just towards the end of my PhD, I really became obsessed with the topic, in particular monetary economics. And I would say 
it was in 2008, really 2007, 2008, that the global financial crisis was happening, that the, the subject really drew me in. And then I uh, came across what is known as the Austrian School of Economics, which is a completely different way of looking at economics from what I was being taught at university. And that really uh, opened my eyes and made me realize, yep, this is uh, this is something that's very interesting. And I became quite uh, obsessed with it. And then I went into a job where I was teaching economics at university. And then uh, I came across Bitcoin and it was everything that I had uh, uh, thought about economics applied in software. Initially, I was very skeptical. I didn't think it could work uh, to the point where, like most people, I just uh, think that my ignorance of it is an argument against it. And then uh, you immediately form a, a preconceived notion about why it can't work, and then you don't bother look into it because you already know that it's not going to work, which is why closed-mindedness can be a very expensive mistake. But I uh, took a closer look eventually as it continued to refuse to go away. I took a closer look and uh, it became something that has just uh, consumed me for quite a while where I just keep reading more about it, learning more about it. And then I started writing about it. And then I wrote the Bitcoin Standard and uh, I became uh, convinced this was what I need to be doing. I, I found an enormous number of readers who liked my book my book became pretty popular, it had been translated to about 37 languages. And so it was the culmination of everything together. It was, um, I'd been teaching economics for almost 10 years, and then I decided I was just going to do that, but on the internet. And so all the skills that I learned from communicating the ideas of economics to a classroom of students served me very well to um, figure out how to communicate these ideas to a broader audience, a global audience. And then all of the studying that I'd done all through all those years of economics um, and alternative economics uh, that is different from what we taught at university was really ideal for understanding the economics of Bitcoin because it flies in the face of everything that's conventional. Yeah. So these things just fit in together. And then I still also happen to think that Bitcoin is the biggest solution to the world's biggest problems. And I take pleasure in explaining that. And that's uh, where I am, where I am in life. Cool. Well, well, I think we'll get into you explaining all about Bitcoin. But I, I want to go back a little bit because I'm curious. You know, I think this is what many people face. They go through the academic system. Uh, and then this goes for many different industries where they're taught how things are. And then they come out of it and their curiosity leads them down a path where they realize, huh, maybe things aren't as uh, I was taught in academia like how was that process for you like coming to certain realizations based on like what you learned and how, how did that impact like conversations maybe you had with you know fellow associates or people in school um the people you, you know, like family members i'm just curious that whole process how that was for you yeah it was uh very intense it was it's it's not a fun thing to go through if you're at a university graduate program and everybody is just going by the book following through on uh, the curriculum. And essentially, it's a really competitive environment in which everybody's trying to do their best. And if you're trying to question what's going on, I mean, it's a little bit like a professional soccer player trying to question the rules of the football game while it's taking place. You're not going to convince the referee to change the rules of the game for you. He can't change the rules of the game for you. It's a and it's, I think that's a useful metaphor because most people during something as stressful as graduate study, 
they have their head down and they're just trying to score the next goal in front of them, follow the game plan. They're not in a position to sit and ask deeper questions about, <clears throat> I'm sorry, why are we playing the way that we're playing and why is this game structured this way? So it's not very easy. And I think there is a big problem in modern academia because of aspects that I discuss in my uh, books. The fact that government funding finances academia makes it, uh, in my opinion, um, pretty uh, immune to reality because it can teach whatever absurd things that people want to hear. And these things don't face the test of the market. They don't have to succeed on the market. They don't have to make people better off in order for these ideas to continue to propagate. There's no cost to failure effectively. So bad ideas can continue in this kind of setting because they are not financed by the value of the uh, success that they provide to the people who learn them on the market. So universities don't really have strong incentive to be very uh, productive in the real world. Their real money comes from government incentives and from government financing, which means they need to, you know, you pay the piper, you call the tune. And so they need to call the tune, they need to sing the tune of the uh, people who pay them. And that's, in my opinion, why universities have moved away from free inquiry and instead switched to a system of essentially indoctrination and top-down information. So it's really not conducive. And it has resulted in what I believe is just uh, the corruption of many, many fields of uh, inquiry. In other words, I mean, in my opinion, economics, what is taught, mainstream economics is essentially uh, bogus. Mainstream climate science is bogus. Mainstream uh, nutrition science is complete nonsense. It's criminal. It's causing so much problems for the world. All of these things make me think that uh, <laughs> there's a serious problem with the way um, that education is run and the way that education functions. Yeah. I mean, for me, like I would say like mainstream education is incredibly demoralizing. You know, I mean, even particularly like growing up, I had no interest in, you know, the economics that I was taught, business, commerce. But then like coming out of that and looking in, into the Austrian school and, you know, your books, et cetera, I find it incredibly empowering, incredibly interesting, incredibly like it resonates on, on such a deep level. Um, so it's almost like the education system that's there is not intended to inspire. Um, so I'm just gonna, I know this is a very deep topic, but on a general level, what are some of the major fallacies of the way economic is taught, economics is taught in mainstream academia? And how does the Austrian school, so to speak, fly in the face of that? So um, I guess we could, we could discuss this from the methodological point of view, but that might be a little uh, too boring. Let's think of it in terms of what it actually means for your day-to-day -day life. Yeah. I think that's probably more relevant to most listeners. One of the most important ways in which they differ is the different conception of money. And government economics is starts from the premise that it is the government that creates money, the government that gives us money. And the question in front of us as a society, collectively, is how do we manage and how do we run that money? And that is um, a great way to paper over the question of, hang on, why should the government even be involved in the provision of money? 
The Austrian school of economics is the only school of economics that rejects the idea that money is a product of government, that money is something that governments can provide. <clears throat> Instead, the Austrian school presents an explanation for why money is a product of the market. Money comes along from the market. People uh, will naturally deal with one another and trade with one another. And naturally, they're going to have a problem when trading with one another, which is that what we call the coincidence of wants problem, which is that I want what you have, but you don't want what I have. And so therefore, I need to sell what I have to somebody who has something that you have, and then get that thing and give it to you. Sorry, to sell it to somebody who has something that you want, and then get that thing and give it to you. And then I'll be able to give you something of value and you can give me the thing that I want. So naturally, we're going to have to use something that is a medium of exchange, something that we use only to exchange. So I buy that thing not because I want to own it, because I want to consume it, because it's useful for me. I just buy it so I can give it to you. That is effectively what becomes money, because eventually people try all kinds of things, but naturally on a market, some things are going to do this job better than others. And so these things will become more and more money-like. And then eventually the thing that does these things best eventually wins out because people start accumulating more and more of it. And then the more people want to trade with it, then the more it makes sense for other people to trade in it. And so the more people use it, because it does its job better, it effectively dominates. It's like a network effect. And um, you know the thing that holds on to its value best eventually ends up naturally becoming the best money and the money that everybody uses. And it's because people can recognize that this thing is good at holding on to its value. But even if they don't recognize it, it's just going to happen anyway because this thing is going to be good at holding on to its value. And so the people who hold it are gonna do better than the people who don't. And so over time, it's going to result in more and more people being able to maintain wealth if they're on this and more and more uh, lost wealth for people who are on something else. Uh, using any other form of uh, money. And so that leads us to one thing becoming money. And that is something that is at the heart of well, how the Austrian school understands economics. And once you understand this, once you understand that you don't need the government to provide money, well, the question is then why do they? And that is a very, very deep rabbit hole. <laughs> once you ask that question, you realize, oh, wow, we live in a messed up world. I mean, it's uh, it's a little bit, uh, I mean, there's the moment when you find out that Santa Claus is not real. And then there's the moment that you find out about sex and procreation and how you were made. And then there's the moment when you find out about why your government is handling your money. I think those are the three stages of growing up. Those are the three milestones of life. One at around age seven, one at around age 14. And then, you know, childhood, puberty, and then really adulthood comes along when you understand how money works. So figuring out why they do it and then figuring out what are the consequences of them doing it and what would the world look like if they didn't do it. I mean, how much better would life be? If we didn't have uh, our entire monetary system optimized for people to rob us, I mean, just imagine how much better life would be, both in the fact that we would all have a lot more wealth accumulated over time, and because we would all have, uh, and because they, basically governments, wouldn't have this endless fountain of money 
to finance every stupid idea, every criminal idea that they come up with, and think about all the suffering that that causes around the world. So, yeah, I, I would say this is really why Australian economics is kind of a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a stranglehold on civilization, right? Absolutely. I really do think of it this way, and that's uh, that's one of the main important uh, themes in my second book, The Fiat Standard, and it is the um, also the kind of... Uh, final chapter of uh, my third book, Principles of Economics, which is in general a book about economics. And in this book, I explain economics from scratch from the Austrian perspective, and I explain why economics is not just about you know memorizing numbers or trying to figure out how to make money on the stock market or any of those things. Economics is about understanding how humans behave with one another and how humans act and how we build a society for one another and how civilization emerges because of our ability to economize and because of our desire to economize. And so because we realize that we are infinitely more productive if we work together, we learn to work together. We learn to become civilized. We learn to live with each other. And we develop the institution that allows us to do this, which is property rights. So we accept each other's property rights. We accept that everybody gets to keep their property rights. And then we're able to cooperate and we're able to work together and we're able to make things happen that we would never be able to make if we were working individually. I mean, try and go and live out in the wilderness for a year and see if you can make it. You will most likely not survive. I think the chances of you surviving are less than not. We need to live as a society. And this is true today and it's been true for all of human history, we need to live as a society in order to thrive because the division of labor, our ability to accept each other's property rights allows us to divide labor between ourselves, to trade with each other freely. And that increases our productivity enormously. Imagine a community of one person, what is possible for you to produce if you wake up every morning and work all day, what are you going to be producing if it's just you? you'll barely able to be produce your food and shelter, and you might fail at that and starve and die or die in, in the cold. But on the other hand, if you're in a society of a million people, you can focus on one tiny little thing and the rest of the people will each work on one tiny other little thing and then you can all trade with one another and then you'll be so much more productive because you're focused on one thing and because you spend your life working on it and everybody else is so much more productive so trading with others becomes far more productive for you. And it's true at a scale of two people or a million people or eight billion people for the whole planet. So that's why if you want to be productive today, you have to be engaged in the division of labor and you have to be in the global market trading with people from all over the world, which we all do. If you're buying anything today, it's, it's produced through a very sophisticated supply chain spread out all over the world. And that's... Um, that, that's really what our human civilization is. And it all rests on the premise of respecting property rights. And what fiat money does is undermine that because it's built on the idea that government gets to take from all of our money. It gets to take from all of our wealth and it gets to do, spend it as um, it wants. We don't get to keep our money and spend it as we want. And then... Uh, 
It takes from us the ability to save for the future. It takes from us the ability to provide for our future. So it makes us reliant on government and it gives government the ability to spend and uh, do whatever it wants. So it completely unbalances society in favor of collectivism at the expense of the individual and in favor of an entity that can violate rights. I mean, they are there in principle to protect your rights, but they do that by taking 80% of your paycheck or something like that, if you think about all the taxes that you're paying. So yes. <laughs> that's a really good extortion racket that they've got there. If they tell you, here, we are here to protect your wealth, but we're going to take 80% of it. Um, that sounds to me like you're essentially a slave who's giving a little bit of uh, spare change to go and uh, play with at the end of your day. And that's effectively what it is. That's what fiat money allows them to do. It allows them to make all the wealth on their territory subject to their approval. Effectively, everybody becomes a slave. And then since we can't save, we have to um, keep borrowing in order to finance major expenses because our money is crappy. It doesn't hold value. So over time, it's difficult for us to save. And so we're constantly getting in debt. Everybody's getting in debt. Everybody's always getting in debt. And the more you get in debt, the cheaper things effectively become for you. So there's a huge incentive to get in debt because not getting in debt is also very expensive because you're always suffering from inflation if you're not in debt. Whereas if you're in debt, you're at least ameliorating the effects of inflation on your wallet because you are long debt effectively. So you're short the national currency. And if the national currency is devalued, then the value of your debt goes down. So that's why everybody's got to be in debt at all times, which ends up making you effectively a debt slave. Well, you know the system's inverted when you have to be at a loss to attempt to win. That's a very profound observation. Yes, absolutely. It makes no sense. And that's why I say it in the, in the fiat standard. It's a monetary system where everybody's looking to accumulate a negative balance. The success there is to accumulate the highest possible negative balance. If you look at the richest people in the world, they're the biggest borrowers in the world. They take out the biggest loans. And that works out for them because they get into very high amounts of debt, but they acquire very sizable assets. And so the winning move is to get a negative balance to be in a lot of debt. And that means effectively financial security is not available for anybody. Nobody can be really financially secure because you're always going to be in debt. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes. you're either going to witness your purchasing power eroded because of inflation, or in which case, you know, you're constantly losing your financial security, or you're going to be in debt, in which case you don't have financial security because you're two or three or four payments away from losing your collateral. Could be your house, your car, your business, your multi-billion dollar business even. Yeah. Yeah. The way, like the way I see it is like, when, when the monetary system or the money is debased, like what's really being debased is the value of our own life force. Because ultimately, money is simply the symbolic representation of life force exchange. So when, when we think about money being debased and inflation and all the rest of it, really what they're tampering with is one's vital energy on the most fundamental level, right? Yeah, absolutely. It is effectively robbing us all because... Um, and, and, and another way I like to think of it is in terms of the time preference, in that... 
when we have a money that, or think of it this way, naturally, the thing that ends up being money is always the thing that holds on to its value best, as I was explaining a little bit earlier. And so therefore, that's chosen as money precisely because it allows you to store value into the future. So the better our money is, the better we can store value into the future because we're more likely to have the value that we store today in the future. And therefore, we're always going to be subject to the um, efficiency of the monetary technology that we use in understanding our own decisions. In other words, if we have a money that is expected to appreciate over time, then you have then you have a fair sense of certainty about the future, and that allows you to start planning more about the future, so you become a more long term oriented person. On the other hand, if you have a, sh a money that is expected to lose value over the time, then you don't have a reliable way for providing for your future. You don't have an easy way of giving yourself things to have in the future. So the future is hazy. The future is more uncertain. And how do you counter that? What do you do? Well, you react to that by becoming a lot more present-oriented. And so this, I believe, has been enormously impactful for us as a society, as individuals, because we are moving more and more toward thinking about the present rather than the long term. And I think you see this everywhere. You see it in the way that people behave financially, but also in everything, in, in, in culture, in music. You see that people just do things very quickly. People instant, don't. Instant, but, instant gratification culture. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody talks about instant gratification culture, but I believe the only way to understand that is that it is a product of the fact that our money is being devalued. And so that's effectively reversing the process of civilization. All throughout human history, we're accumulating more capital and we are we are becoming better at storing wealth in our hard money. And we're constantly finding harder and harder money. So we're becoming able to provide for the future with more efficiency. So we're becoming more and more cognizant of the future. So we think more about the future. So we accumulate more capital. And that makes us more productive. You know, if you have more machines, you're able to produce more. So we become more productive. We become more future-oriented when our money is constantly improving. Mm -hmm. And the last century has been the opposite process. Our money is constantly declining. And we're returning back. Effectively, we're de-civilizing. We're becoming animals again, almost, because we're losing the ability to think about the future. And we're going back. And, and I think this is, I think, uh, a very, very profound criticism of the way that the monetary system works. And I think if you look at even artists, like if you read the work of um, Jack Barzun, who's a cultural critic, he died about 10 or 15 years ago. He was almost 100 years old. He talks, he, he's got an incredible book called From Dawn to Decadence that discusses the history of Western civilization. And he says the 20th century was a century of decadence. Uh, he doesn't get into money. He doesn't get into monetary economics. So he doesn't include this monetary explanation. But he clearly says that it, it all st the decline started around World War I, which is exactly the same time that we went off the gold standard and moved to fiat money. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think this is really the explanation because at every level, you've switched people's um, operating system from something that was long-term focused to something that is short-term focused. So when we become like more present 
oriented and less future oriented, like the qual- quality reduces as well. So when we look around and we see like, you know, horrific art, culture, music, movies, etc. Um, this is also a product of, of us becoming less future oriented. Is that right? I think so. I think these things are uh, highly related. I mean, uh, in in uh, the Bitcoin standard, I use the example, which has gone pretty viral. People keep tweeting about it all the time or posting it uh, on various social media. It was hard money that financed the, the Brandenburg concertos, and it was easy money that financed Mindus Artists' twerks. <laughs> I don't think that's entirely coincidental. Yeah. You think about art on the gold standard, it was very different from the kind of thing that we think of as art today. In fact, just yesterday, I saw this, um, some of these crazy climate activist people had uh, thrown, yeah. I think, soup or something on the Mona Lisa. And somebody asked a very good question on uh, Twitter. Why is it that they don't do this stuff to modern art pieces? It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, why would nobody, I mean, <laughs> there's uh, modern art pieces in these museums that go for 100 or $200 million or something yeah. like that. You'd think they'd be out there trying to splatter those things, but they don't. Why yeah. not? The, the the soup the soup being spread on the Mona Lisa is what modern art is like, largely just that they could take a picture of that and call it modern art. Exactly, and I mean, I, you could take a piece of modern art and you throw some soup on it, and you wouldn't be able to tell if it was a vandal or if it was part of the yeah. artwork. There's absolutely nothing different about it. In fact, and I also mentioned this in the Bitcoin standard. There, this has happened to several modern artists that janitors in museums would throw away their installations because it's garbage. <laughs> they're going around, they're cleaning, and this artist came and made a big mess. And he thinks of it as his masterpiece, but you know, in the after hours, the janitor comes in and just throws it all in the garbage because it is garbage and it looks like garbage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um... I mean, people people think that this is just a matter of taste, but. It's not just a matter of taste. I mean, the the Sistine Chapel was not just something that required somebody to sit there and haughtily splatter some paint. I mean, uh, and I, Michelangelo spent four years hanging from the ceiling to make the Sistine Chapel. He wrote a poem about how awful it was for him and the, the health conditions that it caused him because for four years he was hanging from a ceiling, barely able to eat so that he could finish the thing. It takes a lot of work. It's very difficult. And it took him, of course, a lifetime of work to be able to get to the point where he could hang from that ceiling and do this. And most modern artists don't do that. They just figure out a way of doing something shocking in a few minutes. And that's it. And it's all about finding inspiration to do something shocking that can shock people rather than sitting your ass down and learning how to get really good at something over 20 years and then getting actually good at it yeah yeah there's no, there's thing, no value there's no value for mastery in that sense yeah no for sure and i, I kind of want to talk about that too because you know so many people i think if you ask them they'd think we're living through such innovative times um but can you talk about like the correlation between innovation and and like historically speaking and sound money yeah i think um so we 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 see technology is advancing and technology does continuously advanced generally, we're constantly finding new things because technology is easy to build on because ideas are difficult to destroy. So 
you can destroy a wheel, but it's very difficult to destroy the actual uh, idea of a wheel because people people can just keep making more and more wheels. So it only takes inventing the wheel once to never be able to get rid of the wheel because people will just continue to find more ways of building on it. And then they'll devise new things that you can add onto the wheel, a chariot and then a car and then a train and then an airplane and then all kinds of different things that will be made possible because of all these technologies that build up on each other. So of course, technology today is more advanced than any time before. And we continue to make it better every day by inventing new things. However, if you think about the most important inventions that we think of as 20th century inventions, because for the vast majority of the world, they only uh, materialized in the 20th century, but really they came about in the 19th century. Most and the most important inventions of the 20th century were really 19th century inventions, the telegraph, the car, the airplane, <clears throat> um, the subway, the elevator, so many interventions in medicine, so many products that came to us from industrialization, essentially. It was in the 17th and 18th century that we increased automation and industrialization. And then once we developed the engines, then it was off to the races, taking the engines and using them to make everything better. And that was what happened in the 19th century. And of course, we kept on building upon on that, building up on that since then. But I think the most important inventions came in the 19th century. And I also found an academic uh, quantitative work that finds that if you look at the number of important inventions, it it uh, it has a list of the 6,000-something most important inventions in history. And it looks at the dates at which they came about, and it compares them uh, to the population to get the uh, ratio of uh, inventions per capita. And you find that the most uh, innovative area was the 19th century, late 19th century. And it's been downhill since then. And I think there's truth to that. I think when, when you look at how people were actually innovating, and you think about the Wright brothers, the Wright brothers weren't some massive government uh, research program, and they weren't the university research lab. They were two bicycle shop owners, and they used to go and try and make an airplane on their spare time. They'd take equipment from their bike shop and use it to build an airplane, and that's how they managed to figure out how to fly. That's how we invented flight as humans. It was a couple of guys in their spare time. Now, why did they have spare time? Because they weren't debt slaves like all of us today. Back then, you could be a bike shop owner from North Carolina and you'd have savings because you work every day. You fix people's bikes. They pay you in gold and silver coins. You keep those gold, silver coins and their value appreciates. And so you have savings. You have spare time. You have freedom. You can dedicate your energy to the things that you want. And you have the mental clarity to work on the things that you want to do. You're not a debt slave that has to work all day, every day towards paying off your debt because your money is crappy and you're never able to save. I think we'd have a lot more inventions today if we had more people who were financially secure because their money works. And they'd have more time and they could be more productive and they could, you know, because like, how do we, we can't think beyond ourselves, like our capacity to think greater is totally dependent on the amount of time that we have to actually think. But if we're all stuck in survival, constantly just trying to keep the motion going, trying to keep our heads above water, 
of course, you know, we're not going to get the the crazy inventions and the innovation and the magnificent art that we've seen in the past. Like people are struggling to breathe, metaphorically speaking. Yeah. I actually compared this to, we were talking about art before, you know, I trained as an actor for like 10 years and I think about what it was like 60 years ago to to be an actor in New York City. Rents weren't as high. You weren't just having to work six days a week to like provide and pay your bills. You had more time to explore and and and, and be imaginative. And and I look at that even in terms of some of the quality of of acting that you see today versus, you know, some time in the past. So that's just something that popped in my head that relates to what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. For sure. All right, man. So like, talk to us about Bitcoin and, you know, why this is the draw for you and why this is, you know, potentially the solution out of this. Well, the reason for that is that Bitcoin is the hardest money that has ever been invented. So it's the hardest money to produce. So remember, I was saying that money is basically a technology for transferring value to the future. And whatever ends up getting chosen as money is whatever is the best at doing this job, whatever is the best at uh, holding on to value into the future. And the thing that that was historically, in at any point in time, whatever is the hardest to make ends up being chosen as money. And in a global economy, which is what we became by the end of the 19th century, when the whole world was trading with one another because of modern technology allowing us to travel everywhere and to move stuff around everywhere, because of that, we transformed into a world that was all on the gold standard because gold was the hardest money. It's the hardest money to make. And so now Bitcoin comes along and it's money that is harder than gold. It's supply growth rate is currently similar to gold. It's around 1.8%, which is generally what gold does. And this is the unique thing about gold. It's because we don't consume gold, we're constantly stacking more gold and it's being added onto the stockpiles of the existing gold supply. And that leads to um, modern new production of gold always being a tiny fraction of the existing stockpiles, whereas all other metals, we're always consuming them. Mm-hmm. And so that's why gold only grows at around 1.8% per year. And Bitcoin started off with a very fast, very high percentage growth rate. But then it, that percentage continued to drop over and over uh, time. Now it's at 1.8%. Starting this year, in two months, or three months' time, in April, it's going to drop by half. Every four years, it drops by half. And in April, it's going to drop from about 1.8% to around 0.9%. And so that's going to make Bitcoin really the hardest money in the world. In other words, the hardest money who's the hardest money to create more of. And I think that's really what humanity needs. I mean, this is exactly what we need as a human race. We need a form of money that nobody can make. Everybody has to earn. That's it. If you want money, you need to work. And the way to get it is to work for people so that they give you money and to do useful things for them, sell them things that they want. You can't just print the money which is the way to make money in the current fiat system because there's a massive amount of inflation every year in the best currencies in the world think the us dollar the uh europe the euro the swiss franc with these best currencies the supply increases every year by about seven eight ten percent or something like that now a short break from the episode we have an awesome february lined up in our community friends of the truth the great Simon Esler, who's joined us twice previously for two very popular episodes 
Um, he produced an awesome film, the documentary called Cut, where he dives deep into, you know, this whole transgenderism push, which we see all around us. Um, Simon's a great guy. Can't wait for that members only podcast. Plus two community calls, nervous system call, the GNM call, an astrology call. We're covering it all inside Friends of the Truth. If you're down to connect, awesome community, get, get in touch with us personally and connect with us and just hang out with awesome people, you know, find a true tribe, find a true home that gets you, that shares your values, where you can be real and vulnerable. That's our intention with this community to create a safe space where people can be themselves and pursue the things that they're interested in and talk about them with others who are also on the same page. So friendsofthetruth.co to learn more about that and sign up or hit the link in the show notes. Back to the episode. So that's for the better cases, best cases of the national currencies. In the worst cases, it can go up 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, maybe even 100% supply per year. So for the majority of the people who live in the world, they live in countries that have terrible currencies whose supply doubles every few years. If you take the overall global average, it's 14% for the whole planet. So the average fiat user over the last 60 years has witnessed the supply growth rate of about 14% per year. Which means that you lose, you double the quantity in about five years. The money doubles every five years on average, which is incredible. I mean, it's you. You're constantly witnessing the value of your wealth dissipate and decline over time. And um, for most people, they don't have an alternative. You could think that all right, you could buy gold, but gold doesn't really function as money because it's very expensive to move it around. And we live in a global economy where you're buying things all over the world. And there is no gold-based banking system because government ban it because they want to keep their stupid Ponzi going. And so you have to deal with their Ponzi and you have to get robbed. Your only way of using modern money is to get in on your government's local Ponzi. And that's just not good. Bitcoin offers us a way out of this. When you say hardest money, do you mean like the scarcest money? Is like is that interrelated? It's the one whose supply increases at the lowest uh, supply growth rate. Okay, cool. Why does Bitcoin have value? Because people choose to value it. And that's the same reason that anything anywhere has value. Why does anything have value? It's because people subjectively see value in it. Value is something that's subjective. So the best example of this is think about oil. There was a time in which oil had negative value. You needed to pump oil out of the ground. If you had a piece of land, you wanted to build or you wanted to grow crops on it, you, you would pay people to come and pump the oil off the ground for you so that you could use the land. And then people realized, oh, no, well, actually, this oil thing is quite useful. You could burn it and then you can do magical things with uh, the machines that burn it. And so then oil goes to having a positive value. So it's entirely subjective and people decide it. And in this case, I think in the case of Bitcoin, it's a form of money because it has a payment network that allows you to send money all over the world. And it allows you to do that without having to resort to any financial institutions that are under the supervision of your government. And so to use that network, you need to hold the Bitcoin currency and therefore people begin to value it but then it has an, another important attribute which is the one that i mentioned earlier which is that its supply grows at a very small 
and the decreasing growth rate and its supplies capped there's only ever going to be 21 million bitcoins so we continue to make more bitcoin but at an increasing rate and eventually it stops the production stops and uh, falls to zero so currently the world is at uh we already have about 19 and a half million bitcoins in circulation there's only another one and a half million bitcoin that are going to be produced in the next uh, 100 years or so so it's capped and that means if you hold a little bit of that bitcoin then you would expect its value to go up over time yeah so for example i'm just you know gonna play devil's advocate a little bit so we're saying like pre pre-world war one you know there was there was a gold standard so like you know paper money or fiat money was was backed by gold i guess the question from some people is like what's what is my big what's bitcoin backed by you know it's well a- bitcoin's not backed by anything what is gold backed by gold is not backed by anything yeah backing in the case of money is just a specific concept that refers to a form of money that is redeemable mm-hmm. or um well i should say a form of financial instrument that is redeemable from money in other words when the dollar was backed by gold you could take a set amount of dollars to a bank and they'd give you a set amount of gold in exchange and that was what it meant it, it's redeemable for it mm-hmm. so uh, fiat money government money today is not really backed by anything you can't exchange the dollar for anything except other goods and services but there's no there's no it doesn't say anything on the dollar bill that says this dollar is redeemable for this many um, grams of gold or ounces of gold or whatever so the dollar isn't backed by anything gold isn't backed by anything and tomatoes aren't backed by anything computers aren't backed by anything we value things because we see value in them mm-hmm. and so bitcoin is also not backed by anything but people value it for its own sake because of its own properties as as a use of money right exactly what do you think is the best entry point for people in terms of learning about bitcoin because i think a lot of people get overwhelmed by the technological aspects of it and they're just like well i don't even know where to go i don't know where to start i mean besides reading your book like is it just something that you have to do because in order to challenge something that's already been um been going on you have to put the time and the effort and the work to learn something new you know what i'm saying yeah and i mean i gotta say there are no easy shortcuts there's no very quick way of understanding how all this stuff works i think uh, there's no alternative to putting in the work really you need to you need to figure it out you need to just sit down and understand it i mean obviously i'm biased here but i think my book is yeah. a great place to start and the reason for that is that um you know I think the first step should be the why and my book is there to explain the why so my book is not going to teach you how to use bitcoin it's not going to explain to you how to buy bitcoin how to hold it all of these things all of the how of bitcoin is not included in my book but i think you're not going to understand the how or you're going to mess up the how if you don't understand the why yeah you need to understand the purpose at the beginning so just starting from the starting point of why am i doing this and understanding the importance and the consequence of it is the um is is why i would recommend my book as a starting point and that's um that's really how i 
I think of it. So my book explains why Bitcoin is the best money that we've ever had as humanity and what are the implications of having this. And then that will get you curious into thinking about the how of Bitcoin. And then the how, it's not easy. I'm not going to tell you that, you know, there's a 15-minute YouTube video that'll just explain that. You need to sit down, read books, read blog posts, watch your YouTube videos, um, consider all kinds of different options and alternatives for how to do things. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, driving a car isn't easy, but you learn how to do it. Yeah, totally. Um, so why does Bitcoin stand alone versus, you know, the rest of the crypto world? The difference between Bitcoin and the rest of the cryptocurrencies is that Bitcoin is the only one that is truly decentralized. They, The rest of them claim to be decentralized, but I don't believe that that makes any sense um, because ultimately decentralization is not something that you can just download as a software. It's not an app you install. It's not a code you run. It's not uh, a cloak that you wear. Um, it's just... It, it's you can copy the code, but you can't copy the decentralization huh. that Bitcoin has, which is a product of its unique journey and evolution. And a key point in that is that it was the first one. Because it was the first one, it um, was able to grow in a way in which nobody was able to control it because everybody who was interested in this stuff was working on it. And specifically you know the the historical coincidence around bitcoin is that the guy who did it disappeared he was there as an anonymous person for the first couple of years and then he disappeared and nobody knows who he is and so um because of that there's never been an admin for bitcoin there is no central authority there's never been the guy behind bitcoin this guy's just disappeared nobody knows who he is and i think this is an essential ingredient to the success of the currency because it's operating without anyone being in charge. There's no customer service. There's no CEO. There's nobody in charge. And yet it works. So when you have that in the first one that gets made, well, then it becomes very difficult to make another one that's also decentralized for the simple reason that anybody who's looking for something that's actually decentralized that doesn't have anyone in charge is going to go for the one that's already working as decentralized because you're, they're going to know that there's no way that they can improve on it in that sense of decentralization. So you already have a network that has a million people on it. And you're thinking of making something on your own. Well, you're starting with one person. They're starting with a million. So obviously, they're much more decentralized. So who's going to start their own network? Not the people that are prioritizing decentralization. And that's why effectively... Of all the other currencies, the only ones that you've ever heard of, there's more than 25,000 other currencies at this point. The only ones that you have ever heard of are the ones that have a centralized team in charge that has been promoting them and pushing them and helping people use them and mining them and coding them <clears throat> and telling the world about them. And that group of people is in charge of it. And we've seen this happen several times with all of these digital currencies, it's very trivial for them to change the consensus rules and change any of the parameters of the network. So the second biggest currency after Bitcoin, they've changed the supply schedule, how much production is going to take place. They've already changed it several times. 
and they're likely going to change it again. And that effectively means there's a political group of people that are there that are in charge of it. And I mean, it doesn't really matter how they arrive at the um, decisions that they arrive at. What matters is that these decisions can be taken. Yeah. But you do not have something like this when it comes to Bitcoin. There's no group of people that can get together and decide to change the rules of Bitcoin. Yeah. And what what is it that, for example, has locked in the 21 million scarcity of Bitcoin? Is that simply a code that's been implemented by Satoshi that can't be messed with? Or like, is, is it... Is it 100% impossible that there can be more than 21 million Bitcoin in circulation? Do we know that for a fact yet? I mean, ultimately, the answer is that you get to run the Bitcoin code that you want on your own machine. So as long as you want a Bitcoin with 21 million, you could have a Bitcoin with 21 million. And the first uh, group of people that to get into Bitcoin, the ones that really got into Bitcoin early, and by early, I mean pretty much anybody who's gotten into Bitcoin by now, one of the main draws for Bitcoin was the fact that it had a fixed money supply. Mm -hmm. So the majority of the coins and the majority of the network are held by people who are attracted to this idea of money that nobody can uh, inflate. Yeah. So it's pretty inconceivable that all of these people are going to decide, now nah, you know what, we're going to change it. And we want to make it inflationary. We want to make more of it. And even if a majority of them did want to change it, there's no conceivable way for them to affect such a change really uh, effectively because it's just the cat is out of the bag. There's ten thousand tens of there are tens of thousands of computers around the world that run this software. Yeah, and it's it gets harder every single day to. Uh, heard all of these cats in the same place. Gotcha. And so as Bitcoin adoption increases, how does this in turn affect the government monetary system that that, that we now see? Like mm. what's the degradation that you see occurring and, and the handover that, that may take place as Bitcoin adoption becomes more popular? I think... The way that it works is that Bitcoin is just going to grow as an alternative to the uh, fiat monetary system, the government monetary system. And the people who use it are going to benefit at the expense, uh, where they're going to benefit, not necessarily at the expense of the others, but they're going to benefit from the fact that they have a better technology. It's going to be like cars and horses, computers yeah. and typewriters. It's just a much more productive way of doing the job of money. And so over time, you're just going to witness the fiat-based economy continue to impoverish people and the um, Bitcoin-based economy continue to benefit the people that take part in it. And this is um, a very powerful dynamic where you have a very large majority of people that are in the fiat system that are constantly witnessing their money getting debased yeah. And then you have a small minority of people that are witnessing their wealth appreciate because their money is not getting debased. So, you know, how it plays out is anybody's guess, but uh, how you should play this, I think, is very obvious. Yeah, totally. And I guess ultimately, you know, in a free market with two competing products, but one that seems to do the job much more efficiently, we may get to a, you know, a, a point where we see, um, you know, most people move across to the Bitcoin network. 
if 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 the rules of the free market, you know, operate as they should. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, in a sense, the rules of economics are more powerful than the rules of man, um, as history always shows. Governments always try and uh, break the rules of economics. They always fail. They always think, all right, we're just going to pass a law, and then that's going to make the price of this thing drop. And it doesn't work that way. It never works that way. You don't get to tell markets what to do. Yeah. Markets tell you what to do. That's just the way it is. Yeah. The, the the debasement of money goes back to Roman times. Is that right? When they used to like, you know, deplete it of the silver and replace it with copper and re simply reduce the inherent value of the, the material value of the coin itself. Yes. In fact, I mean, this is this is an, a very important part of the collapse of the Roman Empire. It's the debasement of the currency. And uh, when the debasement started, the collapse started. Yeah. It's the same thing that you see today, except today they generate more digital money in your bank account. But over there, they would put more fake metals into your uh, precious metals. And people would then watch the price of everything go up. And they'd wonder, why is the price of everything going up? And the answer is, it's not. It's just the value of your coins is declining because your king took 5% of your coins, everybody's coins, because he rounded them all up and told you, oh, we're going to make sure that nobody's messing with the coinage by making a new kind of a guaranteed coin. Well, he rounds up all your coins and then he puts in 5% extra nickel in the coin instead of silver. And that gives him 5% extra silver coins. So he takes that 5% extra and he gives you your coins back. And you know, you put him a coin and you got a coin back. So you think nothing has changed, but he's got 5% more coins that he's now out there spending. And so now then you go to the butcher and the price of your meat is up 5%, 10%, 2%, whatever. Price of your wine, the price of your clothes, the price of your shoes, everything's going up. And you wonder why. And this has been the case forever. I mean, really, humanity thrives when we manage to have honest money because people are able to just not worry about this. Yeah. And then the rest of the time, people are just in a complete mess. They're like driving blindfolded in their life because their money is broken and everything doesn't make sense. And life is just hitting them in the face every morning because they're constantly getting robbed and they don't understand that they're getting robbed and they're propagandized to want more robbery. Hmm. You think it's only a matter of time before people understand the why of Bitcoin and start adopting it, that then those people that, I guess, that would be considered, um, you know, major players and control a lot of the assets, that because the market will decide sooner or later, they're going to have to um, turn to Bitcoin as well. I think ultimately with Bitcoin, I, um, I've long said this, Bitcoin is not going to be adopted like uh, the iPhone or like a new app because it's cool, because people want it. It's not going to spread like WhatsApp or TikTok. Um, Bitcoin is going to be adopted because it's going to offer an enormous advantage for its users over its non-users in a way similar to how gunpowder is just going to make you so much more powerful than people who don't have gunpowder. And that's going to mean that everybody's going to have gunpowder. 
And that's how I think of it. So I don't think Bitcoin needs to win the hearts and minds. Bitcoin doesn't need to have a nice user interface. Bitcoin doesn't need to convince you. You're going to find yourself needing Bitcoin because if you're not using Bitcoin, you're using a crappier money and the people who have Bitcoin are using an, inf uh, an infinitely superior money to yours. And that's going to be bad news for you. You're going to witness yourself constantly getting poorer and poorer as they get constantly richer. Yeah. Okay. You have a quote in your book, Principles of Economics. You say, um, if the Earth's volume was that of an Olympic swimming pool, all the world's mines would be roughly the size of half a cup. Now, that's, that's quite a profound statement, particularly when we see so many people have this illusion of, of scarcity of resources. So, like, my question to you is, like, why is that, I guess, propagandized towards us? And what does that mean for how we, you know, relate to how we consume? Yeah, I think um, the point I'm trying to make in that chapter where I discuss this is that the real scarcity in the world is the scarcity of our time. We don't have infinite time on Earth, but we have effectively an infinity of everything else as long as we dedicate more time to it. So if we put our time into producing something, we're going to make more of it and we're going to keep making more and more and more of it that ultimately there is no limit that is physical on how much we can make of it. The limit really is how much time we can dedicate to it. The, re the real limit on all of the resources is that all of these things require time to produce. Yeah. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah, got you. You know, fasc fascinating to think about like how much we all grew up with like the scarcity of like fossil fuels and oil and all the rest of it. And, you know, the massive degradating effects of, you know, mining and et cetera, um, when this, you know, it doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's something that obviously intuitively makes a lot of sense. And you have to really think very deeply about economics and how people economize in order to really get that um, idea out of your head. Yeah. But the earth is enormous and we've barely scratched the surface of it. Yeah. And so the limit on how much we can have of all of those things continues to just be how much time can we dedicate toward producing them? Yeah. How much, energy, how much energy do we have? How much effort are we willing to put towards that? Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. I want to jump into a little bit um, into the Palestinian and Israeli conflict. Obviously, this is a long, deep issue. There's not that much time remaining, so we won't go too deep into it. But just generally speaking, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of the argument that because Israel is the capitalistic society, you know, most libertarians and conservative people tend to be on the side of Israel. And this is very much so just the argument of civilization versus barbarism, so to speak. Um, how do you how do you view the situation? I guess, and what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, this is a common argument among uh, fans of Ayn Rand and people call themselves objectivists. And I think it is pretty ridiculous as an argument. Um, I think there are a lot of problems with um, Ayn Rand and the way that her philosophy is discussed. And I'd say the, the Palestine is the best way to I, understand the difference between the Randians and proper intellectual libertarians, which are the Austrians, in my opinion. So people like Mises, Rothbard. I think uh, Palestine is an excellent litmus test in this regard. For the Randians, 
they have this conception that um, um, you, you, you see a very sort of selfish focus on the fruits of capitalism and this almost um, consumerist attachment to them. It's almost like how people like their sports team or how kids like their favorite kind of ice cream. Well, not just kids, but it's, you know, your favorite ice cream, your favorite TV show, your favorite, um, all of these things where you become attached to them. And in a sense, this is how you see the Randians think about capitalism. And this is the difference between uh, Randians, in a sense, and um, Austrians, because the Austrians focus on the underpinnings of what makes capitalism possible. And that intellectual rigorous analysis makes you arrive at the importance of property rights. If you have property rights, you can have civilization. If you don't have property rights, you can't have anything nice. Society falls apart if we don't have property rights. For the Randians, I believe, and I think Palestine is a great illustration of this, it's really the deification of the consequences that we get from capitalism. And the consequences that we get from capitalism are good, they're great. But this is why they become a lot less intellectually rigorous and they move from being, from the kind of intellectual rigor of the Austrians that prioritizes and, and focuses on property rights to the, you could say, um, you know, from, from the Randians, it, it's a lot tied into self-actualization, selfishness, uh, looking into focusing into focusing on self-satisfaction self-indulgence even which you know say what you want about it the, obviously there's a lot of merit and value in self-actualization and i think this is a useful thing for many people to undergo as a process in their life yet with all is said and done that's still a pretty myopic and selfish view of the world compared to the more intellectually rigorous viewpoint of uh, understanding the property rights foundation of that. And so that is why the, um, the, the Austrians focus on property rights. And so people like Murray Rothbard and people like Hans Hermann Hoppe, people like me would, when looking at the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, understand that there is a problem here, which is the violation of the property rights of Palestinians. When the state of Israel was established, only about 6% of the privately owned land in Palestine was owned by Jews. And most of that was owned by the Jewish National Fund and by these organizations that became the Israel Land Authority. And so today, the Israel Land Authority controls 93% of the land uh, that is uh, ruled by Israel. It's all controlled by this uh, organization. There's a government bureaucracy. So you don't hear the Randians uh, complain about this kind of bureaucracy. And I had a debate with Walter Bloch, who is an Austrian to an extent, but also he's a bit of an Randian. And I think um, I had a debate with him about it, and it's pretty amazing. I mean, uh, Walter Bloch, he calls himself Mr. Capitalism. He wants to privatize everything. He wants to privatize the roads and the seas, everything. And yet, he wouldn't agree to the privatization of land in Palestine. He thinks land in Palestine is fine being owned and operated and managed 
by a government bureaucracy that owns 93% of the land. And so from the Austrian perspective, you focus on the property rights, you understand that you can't take the land of the Palestinians. So um, the vast majority of land in Palestine was owned by Palestinians who were not Jewish when the state of Israel was established and it was confiscated. So this is the original sin. And this is the sin that has not been resolved in any way because land continues to not be a free market. If you had a free market in land in Palestine and Israel today, then that would be the conflict over because then refugees could buy back their property. They could go back to their land and they'd at least have the right to be able to do it. And then everybody would be able to live there and everybody would be able to uh, own property. But as it exists, you can only live in there. You can only get property there by leasing it from the Israel Land Authority, which only leases it to Jews. And so you could be a Palestinian who is who owned land in 1948, and that land has been in your family for 500 years, and you lost that land, and now somebody could be an Australian or an American or a Frenchman or an Uzbek or a uh, Ethiopian, and they get to go to Israel and they get to migrate there and they get subsidized housing and subsidized land from the Israel Land Authority, and you don't just because you are from the wrong religion. So from the perspective of an Austrian economist, this would obviously be the problem. This is the root cause of the problem. And you would understand why if you did something like this, there would be conflict and there would be violence, and there would be bad things happening. But from the perspective of Randian, I think, there's a childish and simplistic and selfish and navel-gazing um, close-mindedness that just, once it becomes emotionally attached to the idea of Israel because of stupid propaganda that they watched in the movies or on TV, then they're incapable of seeing the contradiction between what Israel is actually based upon, which is land theft and um, banning a free market in land and stealing, constantly stealing land from Palestinians in order to allocate it to people from all over the world who claim to be Jewish. You're willing to ignore that because you don't have a solid understanding of the foundations of a capitalist society. And then you're willing to go with the uh, superficial aspects of it. So Israel has got, uh, you know, a more open society that allows people more self-actualization. Well, okay, but that does not justify the theft. And the theft is not something inconse inconsequential. It is the root of the conflict. So they ignore the root of the conflict. They accept the theft that is there. And that's what's really idiotic about what uh, Rand says. She says, it's a fight between the civilized man and the barbarian. Well, what makes a man civilized? What makes civilization is acceptance of property rights. Well, who's refusing the property rights here? Who's, re who's rejecting the legitimacy of property rights in this case? It's the Israelis. It's the Zionist movement. It's the Zion Israeli government specifically. I shouldn't say Israelis. Not all Israelis are like that. But it's a Zionist government. It's a Zionist project that just rejects property for people because of their religion. And of course, none of these people will tell you 
they want to implement a system like this in the US or in Australia, you know, all of the big fans of Israel in the US and Australia, you ask them, well, why don't you want an American land authority that owns 93% of the land of America and allocates it only to people from the majority religious group of society? There's, why isn't it that we can't have an America where only Christians get to own land? Why do you support that system in Israel on stolen land, whereas you don't support it in America or Australia? I don't think they can have a decent answer to this. When I had this debate with Walter Block, uh, he fell back on the position that, well, Jews lived in this land 2,000 years ago, so therefore nobody else has valid property rights in this land. And so if you're a Palestinian, you don't have valid property rights. And I told him, well, before 1948, Jews could immigrate to Palestine and purchase property. And they did purchase a lot of property, but it wasn't a majority of the land. They purchased about 7%, 6% of the land. But these property titles were within a property rights system that these Israelis accepted after the state of Israel was established. In other words, you didn't lose your property if you were Jewish, but you lost your property and the property rights system was considered invalid if you weren't Jewish. And how do you justify this? How can you uh, find a reason? Of, how can you find a justification and rationalization for the idea that the property rights system was valid before 1948 if you were Jewish, but if you're not Jewish, then the property rights system is not valid? Yeah, thanks, man. I've I've heard the argument made that like they actually purchased the majority of land. And even even in the occasions where they were given like the swamp land, like because you know they were able to transform the swamp land even to like decent decent civilizations and build cities, etc. Um, but in my personal research, I only got I only got to six to seven percent of the land purchased as well. So I don't know where the where the rest of that argument came from. No, it's it's very uh, true. It's only about six or seven percent. There was a very meticulous survey of the land that was done in 1946 and they went over the entire properties uh the record of every uh, district you can see it on a website called palestineremembered.com mm -hmm. i'm gonna share the link with you in a second and you see that in every single district the majority of the land was owned by palestinians who were not jewish and this is, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's also extremely predictable because the majority of Jewish people in Palestine had arrived over the 10, 15 years preceding uh, the establishment of Israel. So you go back 50 years, in 1900 or in 1910, the Jewish population of Palestine was about 3%, 5%, 10%, something like that. It was a tiny minority of the population they didn't own a majority of the land and you can't just buy a whole country in a few years they had a lot of money they had a lot of uh, rich uh, europeans migrate and a lot of rich europeans who were financing land purchases but still you can't just buy a whole country but you buy a chunk and then they kicked uh, the majority of the people out they had to eliminate they had to kick out about eight hundred thousand people in 1948 and that started before the 1948 war started. Mm -hmm. um, last question I have on the topic, I guess, is like I've also heard the argument made that I guess the culture, the socio-political train of thought, the religious ideologies, et cetera, place such impositions 
you know, on the Arab and Islamic population that like Islamic societies have in fact actually never built anything really of value. And it's only when Christians and Judaic people came to the region that, you know, we saw flourishing civilizations, et cetera, et cetera. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that, if, if, if any? I don't think that's accurate. I think Islamic civilization has um, produced quite a bit of the civilization in advance. Um, you think about the Abbasid civilization and the Umayyad civilization. I mean, these are states that succeeded and were sustainable for centuries and uh, had an enormous amount of uh, contribution to science and um, they translated and built on the work of a lot of the ancient Greeks, essentially forming the bridge between um, ancient Greeks and modern European science. Um, I mean, a lot of, a lot of uh, scientific and mathematical contributions, astronomy come from Islamic civilization. I think this is uh, incorrect. And uh, as we watch in the West today, civilization is a very intricate thing and it can fall apart. And I think we're watching it fall apart in the West. So um, it's uh, it's tempting to just uh, be uh, dismissive of uh, the ability of people to build civilization. But I think when you see one break in front of your eyes, it helps uh, keep that in perspective. That It's a very difficult thing to do. Got you. Saifedean, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it so much. I just, I guess, in closing, um, where would you like to direct our audience to, you know, to get deeper into your research, your work, what you offer, et cetera? My website, saifedean.com, where I offer courses on the topics of my book and on economics. Uh, you can sign up and uh, take my courses and join two weekly discussions every week. We do them at different uh, time zones. So, sorry, uh, yeah, two weekly discussions. We have the podcast and the seminars for the courses. And we do them at different time zones so people can join from all over the world, from Australia and everywhere. And um, yeah, there's also my podcast, the Bitcoin Standard Podcast, check that out. And my Twitter, at Dean, where I'm pretty active. And, awesome. Uh, yeah. Thanks, and man. Again, I highly encourage everyone to check out Dean's work. I've, I've personally about halfway or three quarters of the way through his latest book, The Principles of Economics. And such an insightful and empowering read. I think really clarifying um, a lot of these subjects for us. So thanks once again, man, and everyone else. Thank you for listening. Man, another another great conversation. So glad Safe was able to to join us. He was struggling a bit with a with a cough for that during that conversation. Um, but I think we got through most of the questions we wanted to get through. Such an important topic. This whole concept of money. This whole concept of really understanding the nature of the economic world around us and how it's been inverted, and how actually our own energy is being siphoned simply by the nature of this this system that we live within. And you know, I understand that much of the truth, truth, freedom, community. You know, many of them have a huge problem um, with Bitcoin. You know, due to their own, I guess, reasons that they've concluded. But in my personal research, where I currently stand, I tend to agree with Safe that this is the hardest, soundest money, um, and particularly just as a as a treasury asset, you know, something to to store your value, something to store whatever excess savings you might have. Because simply from what I've understood and from what I've I guess witnessed in my short experience with Bitcoin, is that it becomes incorruptible from the forces of the Federal Reserve, 
from just the blatant printing of money from these inflationary and deflationary cycles. Um, but people need to experiment for themselves. And like Safe said, it's not easy. It's not mm. easy getting your head around this. It's not easy understanding it. First, you've got to get to the why. Then the how is a whole nother thing to, to, to go through. There's so many options in terms of buying it, storing it, um, the websites, privacy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But in, in my life, like nothing that's been worthwhile has come easy, right? A lot of the greatest things and the most useful and valuable things require effort, require work, require responsibility. I think about German new medicine in this regard as well. Like it takes effort to understand, you know, and to get to the juice, which the masses aren't really going to get to because there's that barrier of effort and of responsibility in the middle. Yeah. And like I brought up earlier in the conversation, like, you know, what do you need to do? Like, how do you challenge what you've been taught, what you what you believe and yeah. and go on this journey of, of exploration and go, hey, maybe there is uh, another truth. You know, maybe maybe what I learned isn't accurate. And I mean, obviously, we see that in many industries and many fields, you know, where the status quo uh, or the mainstream viewpoint uh, is super far off. So. You know, it does take the individual to have the, the the mental fortitude, the emotional fortitude to go. Fuck, I need to um, I need to do some work. I need to study. I need to learn. I need to challenge. I need to question why I believe what I believe, and then yep. see what comes from there. So, totally, you know, and like we're all on this journey together of trying to decondition psychologically and also materially from the way that this inverted system has impacted us is impacting the way we grow, is impacting the natural progression of our consciousness and of our journey, you know, as human beings on earth. And I think, you know, this is just another thing that we need to begin to wrap our heads around. Like we have to, we have to get to a point of survival. We have to get to a point of safety. Then we have to begin to actually learn how to thrive once we've survived. And I think, again, economically, this provides a solution in terms of learning how to thrive, in terms of buying yourself time, so then if you have time, you can think greater. When you think greater, you can create deeper. You can create things of real value, long-term goals, long-term sustainable options for you and your family's um, future. We can be the innovators. We can be the creators. We can bring back the greatness, which has you know, been in a state of huge decline, as Saifedean mentioned, since, since the tampering of the money system. And it's very interesting to think about. And this is a topic that excites me. I'm not sure if you can tell or not, and I want to continue to research and talk about. Anyway, that's all from me. Um, if you want to connect with us personally and have these conversations directly with me, your Asmos, whoever, we have our membership community, Friends of the Truth. You know, we dive deep into you know all these things, plus health, freedom, GNM, nervous system, um, lots of laughs, lots of community calls, and the catching up with the people who get you. So, friendsofthetruth.co. If you want to learn more about that, the link is also in the show notes. Take care, everyone. Smoking mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward and never lose.